All right, River West, so great to be with you this morning. Would you grab your Bibles, pull them out, open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, which is where we go today. We finished the story that we started last week, the first half of Daniel 5. And this morning, to get us started, I want to share with you a quote that I shared with our church Early on in COVID, in the first couple of weeks of quarantine, I shared a quote with you about God in one of those sermons. And I wonder if you remember this quote. I said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Do you remember that quote? We just think about that for a minute. I love this quote. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God. I was making a point in that sermon about the fact that God is not like us. He's totally other. And that experiences that we often take for granted as a part of our our human experience, things like learning, these are simply things that God does not experience. God's never had anything occur to him. He's never had a moment of epiphany. You know what an epiphany is? It's one of those moments where suddenly something dawns on you. Did you know that God has never experienced that? He's never learned anything. He's never been startled by anything. He's never discovered anything. Nothing's ever occurred to him. And the reason this matters is that often when we're, when we're trying to get a vision of God, what we'll do is we'll begin with ourselves and then we'll work up so that our picture of God is often just a projection of of ourselves. God becomes just simply a bigger version of me. There's a scary thought, right? God just being a bigger version of me. But the reality is God is not like us. He's totally other. God never learns anything. God's never caught off guard by anything. God's never threatened by anything. God never has a sleepless night. He's never startled by anything. Did you know that COVID did not startle God? River West, will you just think about that for a moment? This has not startled God. This didn't wake God up in the middle of the night wondering what's happened. I was thinking about the fact that in this COVID time, We've invented phrases to help ourselves understand our experiences, okay? Phrases that are new to us, like the phrase Zoom fatigue. That's a a 2020 phrase. That might be the phrase of 2020, right? Zoom fatigue. Did you know that Zoom fatigue is not a new phrase to God? Before the foundations of the world, God knew that there would come a day when we would be talking about Zoom fatigue, social distancing, contract tracing. These things did not catch God off guard. He's not threatened. God's never broken a sweat. His purposes have never been stifled. He's never felt overwhelmed. God's not like us, friends. 
And this is extremely good news. We need to be reminded of this this morning. And the reason that I'm sharing this with you is that this is one of the major themes in the book of Daniel. Perhaps the central theme of Daniel is that our God is the most high God. In fact, in Daniel chapter five, that phrase, Daniel's gonna repeat that phrase over and over Our God is the most high God. Imagine, take a minute and try to imagine the highest being that you possibly can. Our God is even higher. He's the most high. And what we get in Daniel 5, as you turn your Bibles there, we get these three images that Daniel gives us. Images that we introduced last Sunday, but I didn't get a chance to fully develop them. But three images sort of word pictures, three images that are designed to remind us to renew our vision of the most high God. Do you remember these images? The first image is the holy vessels, those vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. We're gonna unpack the meaning of those vessels a little bit more deeply. The second image, the most graphic image is this image of the finger of God that breaks into the Babylonian house party, startles the heck out of everyone. King Belshazzar soils himself. He's so frightened by this. That image of the hand of God, the finger of God, it's very graphic, meant to show us something about the nature and the character of God. And then finally, we're gonna look more closely at the writing on the wall. Today, we're actually gonna learn the, what the words were themselves, the actual words, what was written and what did they mean? So will you open your Bible? We left off Daniel 5, verse 17. And the first image we're gonna look at is these vessels of gold and silver. And as you're getting ready to read, I wanna wanna tell you what they represent. I wanna kind of clue, clue you in so you can look for this as I read. Those vessels represent the tendency of the human heart to exchange the creator for the created as the object of our worship. We think about that for a minute. That's what those vessels represent. It's the the universal tendency of the human heart to make an exchange where we exchange the creator with the created as the object of our worship. We look at it now, Daniel 5, verse 17. Here's what happened. Then Daniel answered and he said before the king, he's standing before King Belshazzar, remember this? And the king has said, if you show me the interpretation, I'll reward you. You'll get purple, a robe of purple. You'll get a gold chain. You'll get some bling. You'll get the third place in my kingdom. So here he is, Daniel. He's standing before the king and he answered and he said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel says, I don't care about your bling. I don't care about your rewards. I don't care about your gifts. I don't want any of that. I can't be bought. God's word can't be purchased with gifts or rewards. I'm here to be a truth teller. I can't be bought. I'm not a hireling, all right? Isn't it true in the history of our world, people have always tried to surround themselves with gurus and spiritual leaders who they surround themselves with and they'll even sometimes pay them to tell them what they already wanna hear. They surround themselves with leaders 
who they want them to reinforce what they already believe, Daniel says, that's not why I'm here. I can't be bought. I can't be purchased. I'm here to tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. He goes on. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Daniel says, whatever greatness Nebuchadnezzar, your, your, your grandfather had, if he had greatness, it was because the most high God had given it to him. If, if Nebuchadnezzar had power, if he had rule, if he had glory, there's only one reason for that, Belshazzar. And the reason is God gave it to him. Remember this theme we've developed? God is in control of the people who think they're in control. What's amazing is if you read the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, did you know that they had actually predicted by name Nebuchadnezzar's reign? They wrote to the people of Israel. Isaiah wrote 150 years before Nebuchadnezzar's reign and he warned the people of Israel, there will be a king and his name will be Nebuchadnezzar and he will storm into Jerusalem. Jeremiah, 50 years before Nebuchadnezzar's reign, not only did he predict Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he talked about Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He talked about Belshazzar. Jeremiah 27, go read it later. And the question is, what happens when a king loses sight of this? Well, that's what Daniel talks about next. We pick back up in verse 20. He says, but when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most High God. There it is again. It's going to get repeated over and over until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel goes back and he, he re rehearses the story that we learned about in chapter four. You remember this story where God removed from King Nebuchadnezzar the Imago Dei. Do you remember this? Have you thought about this? God says, You're, you have become arrogant. You have forgotten who the creator is. And somehow you become proud and you've thought all this glory, all this power is because of something inherent to you. And so I'm temporarily gonna remove from you the one thing that sets you apart from the beasts of the field, beasts of burden. And literally God took away the Imago Dei so that Nebuchadnezzar lived in a field eating grass like an ox with the dew of heaven on his body, this powerful, powerful imagery. And the reader goes, why is Daniel recounting this history? 23 years 
ago. This, this, it's old news. Why is he recounting this to Belshazzar? Here's the reason. Because Daniel doesn't just want Belshazzar to know that he's about to be judged. That's not enough. Daniel says, I need you to understand why you're coming under the judgment of God. There's Belshazzar. He's standing before Daniel. And all appearances would tell us that he's totally perplexed, that he has no idea what's going on. We would think from, from, from the outside that Belshazzar is flummoxed. He can't understand why has this finger shown up? Why is all of this happening to me? But the fact is Belshazzar knew exactly why this was happening. He already knew. We look where we left off. Verse 22. It says, in you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Daniel says, you knew this. You, you, knew, your, you knew your grandfather's history. You knew about the activity of the most high God. And yet you continued in arrogance and pride and idolatry. Friends, isn't it true? Having clear information does not always guarantee the right response. Isn't that true? We do this all the time. We, we know stuff. We have clear information all the time. Do I know that high fructose corn syrup is basically a narcotic? Okay. It's basically as addictive as a narcotic. Of course I know that. Do I continue to drink the periodic cherry Pepsi? Of course I do because it's delectable. All right. Having clear information does not always guarantee the right response. And, and here's Belshazzar and he knows in his head, he knows that God is the most high God, but that's his, his problem is not a head problem. His problem is a heart problem. Did you see that? Daniel says, you didn't humble your heart. It was your heart that was filled with pride and arrogance towards God. We keep reading. He says, you knew this, O king. You knew this about God, and you, but you did not humble your heart, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, verse 23. And the vessels, there they are, the vessels of his house, the vessels of gold and silver that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. You had them brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. It's the, these, these vessels of gold and silver. They, see, they represent something. They represent something universal about the human heart. It was true for Belshazzar. It's true throughout human history. The tendency of the human heart to make this exchange, to exchange the creator with the created as the object of our worship. I love the words of come thou fount, the words that say prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I know, God, I know you're the most high God. And yet it is the tendency of the human heart to wander and, and make this exchange. So true, such a powerful reminder 
Daniel says, King Belshazzar, you took the vessels of the house of the most high God, a God whom you clearly knew about, a God who holds your every breath in his hand, a God who alone is worthy of your honor, and you made a deliberate decision to make an exchange. I love this imagery. He says, with your hand squeezed around that cup as if to say, God, I have you in my control. You're not calling the shots, Lord. I'm calling the shots. He says, you chose instead to worship created things, lifeless, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And the exchange was made. It's Romans chapter one before Romans one was ever written. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are hearing Romans one. Remember Romans chapter one, where Paul said, he said, verse 21, for although they knew God, and this is like a universal statement, he's talking about humankind, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Earlier in the chapter, Paul had said, everyone knows that the, the reality of God, it's as plain as the, as the trees and the leaves behind me but people suppress the truth of that knowledge and unrighteousness because they don't want to admit. Paul says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but instead they made an exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's almost like he's reflecting on Belshazzar and saying, this is not a Belshazzar problem. This is a human problem. And that's what the vessels represent. It's a human heart problem. And how does God respond? He, he breaks in with, with his finger. The finger of the living God, the hand of God is God's response. We turn to that image next. We look back at your Bible, Daniel 5, verse 24. Let me tell you what this finger represents. The finger of God represents the gracious intervention and revelation of God through written word. I love this. I want you to think about it. That's what the finger represents. It represents the gracious intervention, God breaking into our world. Why? To reveal himself, to reveal truth. How? Through written word. Here's what happened next. Daniel 5, verse 24 then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. Isn't that interesting? From his presence, the hand was sent. So what Daniel's doing here is he's making explicit what the reader has already assumed, which is this hand that sort of showed up disconnected from a human body. The reader knows th this hand has come from God. This is a divine moment. Perhaps Belshazzar did not know that. Maybe his guests did not know that. Maybe they thought it was just a ghost or a demon or some kind of premonition. But the reader knows this is an act of God. This is the finger. Yes, it, it, it looks like the finger of a human hand, but this has come from God. And Daniel says, exactly. It came from God's presence. Daniel goes out of his way to say, this finger of God, it was with God. It was in the presence of God. And then in a moment in response to Belshazzar and his stubbornness and his arrogance, his refusal to honor God, what does God do? He breaks in. 
He intervenes. He says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal myself. He breaks in with a finger that reveals his truth, his heart, his word. And it comes even with a warning. So it's, it's a revelation of God's heart and his truth, but there's an, exp- an implicit warning involved. And clearly the finger was a warning. We know this because Belshazzar was freaked out of his mind, right? This startled him. He sensed this, there's, there's something to this. There's judgment involved in this. I'm being warned that my behavior is not appropriate. And that's, that's what the finger of God often does. The finger of God combines revelation of God's heart through written word with a little bit of warning. I can illustrate this for you. I remember the very first time that Kathy and I had little children other than our own at our dinner table. We had our little niece and nephew over for dinner and we were sitting at the table. And at my house, we've revealed very clearly house rules to our daughters, kind of behavior that we expect at the dinner table, right? So there we are with my niece and my nephew, precious little kids. And my wife brings out this fabulous meal. My wife is just an incredible cook. And one of the ways she shows love is through her cooking, preparing these amazing feasts. She brings out these beautiful, delicious looking plates of food. She sets them down in front of my niece and my nephew. And my nephew, he was small, four or five years old. He looks at this plate of food in front of him and it became evident that he was not pleased with what was set before him. And he picked up the plate of food and I'm starting to think what's about to go down. And he takes the plate of food and he hucks it onto the floor and he screams, yucky. Now, what did I do? (laughs) I intervened, okay? The finger of Adam (laughs) intervened. First, I prayed for patience and grace and compassion. And then I intervened with a word of revelation and a warning. And I said, hey, bud, in our house, if we don't like something that's set before us, Here's what we do. We don't throw it on the ground. We don't throw it across the room. We say, I don't think I want to eat this. All right. And this is this moment. Here's God. He's watching what's going down. He's seeing the kind of behavior that Belshazzar is exhibiting. And God breaks in. He intervenes. Why? Out of of anger, out of wrath? No gracious intervention to reveal his heart, to reveal his truth. But yes, it comes with a warning. And you know what? It's like this all throughout the Bible. That image of the finger of God, it's all throughout scripture. Do you remember in the book of Exodus when Moses, he's finished meeting with God on Mount Sinai and God gives him the the two tablets with the 10 commandments. Did you know that In Exodus chapter 31, God tells Moses, those tablets with the 10 commandments, my my written word, my revelation, yes, it comes with a warning. God says those were written with the finger of God. Or, Or in Exodus eight, when Pharaoh's magicians are reflecting on the plagues, this is a fascinating story. The plagues have been happening. And it's amazing if you go back and read Exodus 8, when when God turned the waters of the Nile into blood, did you know that Pharaoh's magicians were actually able to 
replicate that with, with the dark arts, Exodus tells us. They were able to conjure up some form of turning water red or, when, or in the second plague when God created frogs out of nothing, the magicians were able to replicate that. But when they got to the third plague, God says to Moses, have Aaron take his staff and strike the dust of the earth and the dust turns into gnats, millions and millions of gnats. Finally, Pharaoh's magicians step back and they acknowledge, hey, Pharaoh, this is the result of the finger of God. This is God revealing his heart. This is God warning us. And then we turn to the life of Jesus, that the finger of God shows up in the life of Jesus. Jesus is casting out demons and he says, but if it is by the finger of God, Luke 11, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or do you remember when Jesus was presented with the woman caught in adultery, John chapter eight, these guys show up, they've, they've caught this woman in the act of adultery. They wanna condemn her. They wanna stone her. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He bends down and he takes his finger and he writes in the ground over and over and over. God revealing, revealing his heart, revealing his truth, but also with a warning. And then in this moment, here in Belshazzar's throne room, the finger of God is broken into the world to reveal and warn, but also to judge. And what is the verdict? Verse 25, will you look at it with me? And this is the writing that was inscribed, Daniel said. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. There they are. Those are the words, the actual words, right? Oh, the finger showed up, but what did it write? Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now, this is where my imagination kicks in because I'm wondering, did, did Daniel walk over to the wall and just read it? Were the words still there? Or, or, or perhaps the words were gone by now, but God had already revealed to Daniel what they were. Either way, the, the reality is Daniel knows something that Belshazzar's wise men, Chaldeans, magicians, sorcerers did not have access to. He knows the words, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Each of these words stands for a different weight used on a balancing scale for weighing precious metal. You know what a balancing scale looks like with two trays and it's perfectly balanced? And this is how they would figure out the weight of precious metals. They would put the precious metal in one, one side and then they would use weights. And they had different kinds of weights to get it perfectly balanced. And each of these three words represents a different weight. So mene is the mina. That's the heaviest weight. It's about 500 grams, approximately one pound. Tekel represents a shekel. That's about 10 grams. It's much smaller. And then parson is even a different weight. Parson is a half mina. It's 250 grams. So it's a mina divided in half. So at the surface, these this is not a terribly meaningful message. This might be why Belshazzar didn't understand what God was saying to him. Someone needs to interpret these words. Someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, remember? Someone who has light and understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Someone who's tapped into the most high God. And of course we learn Daniel has the interpretation. 
Someone has to step in and tell the king what it means. And in a minute, we'll look at the interpretation. But we know this, weights and measurements have been used from the beginning of time as symbols to represent justice and righteousness. You want just scales. That's what weights represent. And so the writing represents the perfectly just, the perfectly justified judgment of God. And the reader knows this is coming. This is about judgment. God has is, God is intervened graciously, yes, but with a warning to reveal his heart. And finally, the content of that warning is judgment. And it's perfectly just. It's justified. Why? When finally, when God finally shows up to judge, we always know his judgment is righteous. His judgment is justified. Why? Because he's not like us. He's the most high God. Human beings, we get judgment wrong over and over and over again. We get justice wrong in our world over and over and over again, but not God. God never gets judgment wrong. But I think a lot of people struggle with the judgment of God, probably because what we do is we start with us and then build up and create our vision of God that way. And so many struggle and think, who is God to judge? What right does God have to judge? I, I, don't, I don't recognize God's judgment over my life. And so we struggle with this concept, but God's not like us, folks. His judgment is perfectly righteous. And not only that, it's perfectly justified. In fact, if you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, what you discover is that often God is so patient, so slow to anger. He's, he's often patient and slow even to judgment. But when he finally does judge, it's always justified. And here's the interpretation. Daniel says, verse 25, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Belshazzar, God has numbered your life and numbered your, the whole kingdom of Babylon has been numbered and brought to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were two empires, two kingdoms that came together, united together to, to overthrow Babylon. It, it became what we know as the Medo-Persian Empire. Then look what happened next. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And the reader's thinking, Belshazzar, did you hear what Daniel just said? What, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time with this? It's like it's completely lost on him. And he wastes time with pomp and circumstance and honoring Daniel. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 60 years old. Sometimes justice is delayed. Sometimes the judgment of God is delayed and sometimes judgment comes swiftly. And so it was for Belshazzar. That very night, God's judgment came. 
predicted and fulfilled. Amazing. Friends, you never know. You just never know how much time you have. Do not presume upon the patience and the grace of God. Our days are numbered. We, we have no idea how long we have here. Why would we assume? Why would we wait? Why, why would we think, I have time to get right with God? Belshazzar, perhaps he thought that. You know, I've reflected on Belshazzar and I've wondered, was there something that Belshazzar could have done to avoid this judgment? And the answer is absolutely. If in the moment he heard those words of judgment, if he had fallen on his knees and repented and put his faith in the gracious God, I think he would have been spared. But clearly he didn't. And judgment came immediately. You know, it's amazing. History books tell the story of this event. It's apparently it's this epic, famous military victory, a strategy that was so brilliant that it's all over the history books. Herodotus, who's a Greek historian, describes what happened that night. He describes Darius, the king, and he'd come up with a strategy for how to overthrow Babylon. It's written in, in, a, in a history book 300 years before the birth of Christ. And the story goes that the river Euphrates ran into Babylon. It ran under the wall of the, of the outside of the city so that no one could get in this massive wall. So what Darius did is he diverted the river Euphrates into a lake and then his soldiers were able to walk in under the wall of the city. And what Herodotus tells us is that there was a party going on. They were celebrating a feast, which is what we read about in Daniel, Belshazzar's party. So they had no idea was about what it was about to hit, hit them. And the Medo-Persian soldiers rushed in and they conquered Babylon in one night. And Belshazzar was killed and Darius became king. You just have no idea. Your days are numbered. You have no long, you have no idea how long you'll be here. Do not presume upon the patience and the grace of God. But friends, can I close this morning by telling you something about Jesus and justice? This is how I want to land the plane today. Jesus and justice. Because see, God treats us differently because of the good news of Christ. We, we are on this side of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. My friends, when, when we do wrong and we get judgment, do you know what the word is that we use to describe that? It's the word justice. We call that justice. If I do wrong and I get judgment, that's justice. When we do wrong and Jesus gets the judgment, do you know what we call that? We call that grace. We call that the gospel. Did you know that Jesus took up the cup? He took up the vessel the vessel of God's wrath. It's very same to the vessel that Belshazzar had drunk from. But Belshazzar took on the wrath of God and was punished justly for his sin. Did you know that Jesus took up that very cup, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank fully of it in our place so that we would not be judged? 
Incredible. Did you know the same hand that wrote the law on the tablets of stone for Moses was the very same hand that wrote on the wall in Belshazzar's throne room and the very same hand that wrote on the dusty ground in Jerusalem, the finger of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That very same finger now writes on the tablets of human hearts. You know, there's this place in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul says, your heart is like a letter from God written, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts by the finger of God. I love this imagery. It's as if to say, Jesus, he's, he's writing again. He's writing on, on tablets, but it's the tablets of your human heart. But this time he doesn't write words like numbered. Your days are numbered. Or weighed, you've been weighed and found wanting or divided. Your days are not numbered. You've not been found wanting. You're not divided. Jesus writes new words on your heart. Words like beloved, forgiven, righteous, chosen, holy, children of God, daughter of the king, son of the king. Jesus, with authority, he in intervenes and he writes new words on your heart, gospel words, words of grace, words of forgiveness. And to Jesus be praised. And this is what we celebrate every Sunday when we come to the table. We take that, that bread, which I'll invite you now to grab the bread and the cup and we'll eat and drink in just a moment after I pray. We take that bread that represents the body of Christ, which was given for us. And every time we eat of it, we remember to God be the glory. I have not received the punishment that I deserve. Yes, justice was served where? Unto the perfect, righteous, holy body of my savior, Jesus Christ. And we take that cup, the the cup Jesus told us that represents his blood, blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. And every time we drink of it, we remember, yes, justice was served, but I did not receive judgment. Judgment was transferred to my savior and king who lived a perfect life in my place and died a perfect death in my place. Why? So that I could go free. See, another exchange was made in the economy of God an exchange of righteousness where my sin is transferred off of me and transferred onto my savior, King Jesus, and his perfect righteousness is transferred off of him and God places it on me, his son, an exchange of perfect righteousness. And we celebrate that every time we eat and drink. To God be the glory. Will you pray with me, folks? Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for this vision of your majesty. You are the most high God. And yes, Lord, we live in a world of sin. We live in a world where our hearts are prone to wander. Even as followers of Christ have been transformed by your spirit, yet there are times we find that we have this tendency to to begin to be drawn away from our creator to created things, to make them the objects of our affection, even though we know you're the most high God. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for intervening. Thank you 
this imagery of the finger of God that reveals truth through the written word, the precious scriptures, the living word, Jesus Christ, to instruct us, to warn us, to give us your heart and your mind and your truth and your law, how we thank you, Lord. And how we thank you, Father, even for your perfect judgment that is completely justified. And of course, Lord, we recognize in the gospel that justice was served, that Jesus took our place. And so we praise you and we thank you for that, Lord God. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, if you're there gathered in your living room alone and and you have a bread and a cup, as we begin to worship together, let's eat and drink in remembrance of, of God's goodness to us in Christ. Let's eat. And let's drink. Amen. You got a liturgy guide there. If you're gathered in a house church or with family, there's a liturgy guide that you can use to take communion together after worship. There'll be some questions for reflection down there. If you'd like to give today in response to what God has spoken to you, you can give online or you can mail in a check to the church office. But God bless you, River West. Let's worship together.